Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. It is not often that we have return guests, but in this particular instance, the spokesperson is exemplary, and our discussions have always been marvelous. Our guest today is Mr. Jeff Clayton, the executive director of the American Bail Coalition. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks again for having me on, Robert. It's always a real treat. It's my pleasure. I wonder if we can start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, for those who haven't heard the program before, and what's brought you to this time and place. Absolutely. Uh, So as you know, I uh, started my uh, high school days off as a high school debater. I was a college debater down at Baylor University. Uh, And from there, I became an assistant debate coach at the University of Rochester in western New York, uh, where I got a master's degree in public policy, uh, worked uh, in the office of the U.S. Department of Transportation as a presidential management fellow, ultimately moved home to my hometown, Denver, Colorado, Uh, attended law school, graduated in 2003, have been an attorney since then, and uh, represented public safety officers, police officers uh, for four years, and then, of course, spent four almost five years representing the state courts and probation. Uh, and, of course, I uh, did some, a lot of legislative work and lobbying work uh, prior to uh, becoming the executive director of the American Bail Coalition, uh, which occurred in May of 2015. It's a marvelous background. What brought you to that point in your life professionally, Jeff, where you decided to become the activist, or had you always harbored that view? Well, I, I think um, I've always been uh, in the debate, so to speak. I mean, I've always wanted to have conversations about public policy debate, you know, since age 14. And, you know, to get into a national issue that was um, hot at the time in 2015 and just to have the opportunity, you know, to do all the, of the different things I've gotten to do, I think, you know, was the reason to do it. Now, the American Bail Coalition, for those in the listening audience who have not come across the title and the premise, what is its history purpose? Can you analyze more or less and evaluate its successes? Yeah, it's uh, been around for a little bit over 15 years. Um, there was a, a legacy organization that was very similar. And what it is is a trade association uh, of insurance companies uh, who are the underwriter of criminal bail bondsmen. So the guys who... Uh, You see the signs all across the country, uh, and certainly in New York. uh, When you're arrested, you need to post a bail bond. uh, You call one of these bondsmen. And so the uh, trade association that I work for um, underwrites, um, you know, these bail bondsmen throughout the country. Uh, In terms of where things are, evaluating our success, I mean, I think in the last couple of years we've gotten our message out. I think the, and as we've talked before, I think sort of this idea of the third generation of bail reform um, there was an end to it. There was an end game to it. And I think the end game is that the, you know, massive shift to these preventative detention other systems uh, and the illegality of it, I think, is coming to a head. And I think we're getting our message out. But, you know, it's, it's hard to say, uh, like on a score sheet, you know, how we've done. But I'll give ourselves a B plus. That's good enough. That's good enough. Given the fact that so much needs to be changed, uh, it's marvelous that you've gotten this far. What has been uh, your greatest point of resistance? Well, I think it's really just been the, um, the simplification of the bail system by the other side. And just the, you know, if you have money, you're, you're out, and if you don't, then you're in. 
and just trying to explain that there's a, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And of course, hating that doesn't, you know, make a solution out of hating that. And that's um, what's been the issue, is you either believe in the right to bail or you don't, and there's really only two overall systems that you can implement. And I think what people are starting to figure out is the other system, you know, probably isn't as good. And But, you know, that doesn't mean we can't change the current system. So but I, I really think it's just been the rhetoric um, that's been the problem and the, you know, continuing pounding of it in the media and the lack of understanding uh, about the system uh, that's, that's really been the biggest, you know, point of, of resistance for us. Jeff, do you feel within the core context of the bail system as it now exists, the solution is evident? I think it is, and I think, it, I think it's history. I think it is the idea that uh, this has been a core constitutional right on this continent for 400-plus years, um, that bail traditionally has meant money, not necessarily commercial bail bondsmen. I mean, obviously the first you know, viable commercial bail bond shop opened in San Francisco in 19, or 1898. But, you know, it's the idea that, you know, somebody's going to vouch for you so you can get out of jail rather than giving the government, um, you know, the power to decide who's dangerous and then, and then sort of lock people up. So I think the answer is there, but I think, you know, this idea that we're going to throw the entire thing out is, is proving not to be the answer. And like I said, that doesn't mean that there are you know, many reforms that we could do, and that, you know, many of which we endorse. Given our polarized political climate, do you find it recently more difficult to presuppose a position? I do find it more difficult, and I think, you know, one of the things that people like about me and one of the things that's just an inherent, you know, trait I have is I'm, I'm a moderate person. I'm a thinking person more than I'm an extremist. And as I've told um, our board and a lot of the agents around the country, I think the way the times are right now, having a moderate message, having a solution, and not coming forward with criticisms and saying everything's broken uh, it, it, it is, is appropriate right now. And I think, you know, on both sides of the aisle, you've got, you know, extremists driving messages, uh, and that doesn't get anything done. And so for us, you know, moving forward into sort of the next however long the president's going to be the president, era of divisiveness is, you know, let's just come forward and try to work with groups on all sides of the aisle and move the needle forward on our issue. Uh, and that's really all you can do. And I think anytime you embrace a extreme position right now on either side, it, it's bad for your message. What measures have you used, uh, to use the old phrase, to maintain that the center holds what methodologies have you used to disallow any attempt to politicize the bail issue? Well, we, <laughs> we, I don't think we've done a good job at stopping the politicization of it, um, but I don't, think it's, I don't think we're politicizing it. I think the other side uh, is politicizing it. Um, you know, I think it's just finding, you know, I think one of the things that you learn, at least I learned on day one, of public policy school is what a professor called ex inefficiency, which described in basic English is how can we make everybody in the system better off without making anybody worse off? And those are the policy things that we're looking for. How can we help move the system forward uh, in a responsible way, uh, in, and maybe in a um, not so quick way, uh, in a in a slower change uh, to where people can can adopt to it. But I think, you know, it's just finding solutions on both sides of the aisle that people can say, that's stupid. And I, and I think that, you know, to give you an example, you know, uh, bails are posted 
all the time in this country, and people continue to sit in jail after the bails are posted because there's all these administrative delays. And so to give you an example, a, a defendant was, was essentially lost in the Harris County, Texas jail for 30 hours. Uh, they couldn't find him. Uh, he was in there, bond had been posted, and that's unconstitutional. And so, you know, things like that, where we can make real changes to the system and modernize it and, you know, allow for the electronic transmission of documents to cut down on the amount of time people have to spend behind bars is, is really where we need to go. Now, your home base is Colorado, and yet you are in California. It seems that you're balancing a great many bills and cases in the air. What have been your most recent activities? I know you mentioned in our pre-phone call before the program began the case of Walker v. Calhoun. What are some of the instances of decisions that you've played harbor with? Well, most recently, I mean, just this morning, I flew back in from Sacramento. Um, The... California Senate last night passed what I would consider a historic but misguided bail reform uh, law, very similar to what has been uh, put in place in New Jersey. Uh, And we'll wait to see if the governor uh, ends up signing that. I think there's going to be a ton of legal challenges just the way that the the legislation was set up. So I've been putting a lot of work uh, into that. Certainly uh, other states that have been battlegrounds this year. Uh, I've been to Columbus, Ohio uh, any number of times. Uh, There was a attempt to run a constitutional amendment to eliminate the right to bail and implement the New Jersey system in both the states of Idaho and Delaware. And so we weighed in heavily uh, in, those, in those cases. And then, of course, you know, as we've talked about on, on the previous shows, the legal cases um, that are out there, and certainly since then we've gotten decisions in two out of the three that are pending, uh, and certainly we can talk about that. But it's been, you know, through the legislative season, a busy one. Um, but I think the tide really is turning against the idea that we want to go to the federal or the, no, uh, the New Jersey no-money bail system. What then are some of the definitive imperatives that are presently on your calendar, the focal points? Well, um, this is a hard uh, time to have much inspiration because we call it the conference season. Uh, and so I will be traveling the country over the next, you know, three months, Uh, presenting at conferences of, uh, you know, judges, lawyers, uh, and certainly bail agent conferences and bail conferences. So, you know, I've got a long calendar. I'm uh, going to, you know, Ohio. I'm going to Florida. I'm going to, um, I can't even think of the number of places that we're going. Uh, And then certainly, you know, more the most recent uh, or the most uh, current thing that's going to happen that's big is that the uh, constitutionality of the California bail system will be on trial uh, starting uh, September the 17th uh, in the uh, U.S. District Court in California in, in Oakland. So I'll be out there to watch uh, that historic case uh, uh, go through. And then, like I said, the rest of the year we'll be planning for next year, uh, coming up with sort of our new message uh, in light of all of the things that have happened on this issue. And I can tell you, just since I've been on the show, um, the changes have been huge uh, in terms of civil rights groups and others deciding that this this pathway that we were on to to bail reform, you know, probably isn't the right path. Pragmatically, is this essentially a civil rights issue? Obviously, it's more than that, but it's always pictured in that fashion. You know, I think it is a civil rights issue, and I think that's why the alternate system is worse. You know, ultimately, obviously, it's about, you know, appearance in court, um, you know, dangerous to the community who, you know, should people have to post security to get out, consideration of dangerousness and all that. 
sort of a thing, but I think right now it's a civil rights issue even more than it was before because the alternate system of what one commentator calls e-carceration, electronic incarceration as an alternative to bail, is a big reality. And there was a big uh, case filed in California where they're using private probation and charging, you know, $850 a month to these defendants, uh, you know, the same ones they argue couldn't afford bail. So that's been one thing. And then I think the other thing that's really the hottest issue in criminal justice and one that we've talked to legislators, federal level, local level, state level, all have an eye on is this idea that we're going to use these uh, risk algorithms, these uh, risk assessments in the criminal justice system and certainly in bail. Uh, and and whether those are discriminatory, and certainly, you know, three weeks ago, you know, 115 civil rights groups came out saying they do think they're discriminatory and that we should stop using them. But the reality is, since the last generation, we've been doing the exact opposite, which is embedding these um, into the system. So those key issues on civil rights, I think, is really what's going to drive the future on this, not so much uh, the public safety arguments, although they are important. But I think as a civil rights issue, that's what's going to drive the outcome on this. Will any attempt at using an algorithm by necessity, Jeff, have to be rather flexible? I think it would be uh, have to be flexible, and that's I guess that's sort of the argument, and that's the paradox that we're in, which is we tell judges it's scientific, we tell everybody it's scientific, but then we say, well, you know, go ahead and deviate from it because you need to use human judgment, and so it's an interplay between you know justice and science. When is there science? When does it break down? You know, what is what would be the scientific basis for disagreeing with the science? And really, what is the science, I think, is what's really coming out, which is, you know, we have risk categories. You know, the bill that passed in California, we're going to basically put three, you know, criminal scarlet letters on people. They're low, medium, or high. If they're low, they go home. If they're medium, we put them on e-carceration, you know, house arrest and all this sort of thing. And then if they're high risk, we lock them in jail. And that's not individual. That's just grouping people um, and certainly it's arbitrary, I think, within the categories of who's medium. Um, and, you know, we've seen, you know, even in New Jersey where uh, they're using an algorithm to decide, you know, who gets preventatively detained. You know, only 45% of those people statistically are going to fail to appear or commit a new crime, which means we're detaining, you know, all 10 of those people when only, you know, four or five are going to fail. And so, you know, it needs to be flexible. But right now, it's just as a concept, um, I think it's breaking down. There was mention recently made that, according to one report, 81% of the misdemeanor arrestees Harris County, Houston, Texas, were unable to post bail. 40% were never able to post bail. Has it gotten that critical throughout the country? Yeah, and that, those numbers are crazy because of the of what's happened under the injunction. Um, but there were, um, I don't, I'm not sure it was 81%, but it was a high number of folks that were being detained um, on these misdemeanor bails. But the reality, you know, is the time to uh, disposition in those cases um, is pretty short. In other words, people don't stay in very long. But I would say, and I would agree uh, with you, that I, I think under the old system, I think Harris County re- overly relied on the rote use of um, low-level bails and misdemeanors without proper um, individual consideration. And certainly that's why the system was declared unconstitutional. Uh, you know, of course, now the the circuit has come back and said, well, if you have a bail schedule and you, you know, review indigency and all this sort of thing within 48 hours, you know, that's righteous under the Constitution. But that doesn't make it necessarily good public policy. And as I think I've told you before, and one of the things, you know, we need to think about is what is a nuisance crime and what um, is the position of these people? Uh, and so, you know, when you have the, 
you know, like Maurice Walker, or you have, you know, homeless people who have severe drug and mental health problems, co-occurring disorders, committing the same crime that's so low level over and over and over again, you know, is it really, is it really going to do anything if they stay in jail for a little bit longer before they plea or they just plea? Uh, and, you know, I, I just don't know what you do about that. And I think maybe that's where bail and the whole incentives of it, I think, you know, break down. It would seem that there would need to be some correlate between the change in the bail situation and the reexamination of the entire penal system, which sounds simplistic enough to say, but virtually uh, impossible to consider doing. It is, but, you know, one of the things we're trying to do is is educate other partners uh, on the system and how it works, try to affect their work. And one group that I presented to was Mental Health America. And, you know, the title of the presentation, they titled it for me, it said, or, or the title of their conference was, there's no, and this was in New Orleans, was that um, there's no big, easy solution to mental health issues, you know, in the criminal justice system. And my position was, the criminal justice system is no solution, not a big, easy solution. It's no solution at all. Mm. And I think, you know, mental health issues and substance abuse issues, that is a huge chunk of who's in the system. And we do a poor job of looking at that holistically and what we can do to put pieces in place to stop those folks from continuing to be in there. Because, you know, as I've told you before, you know, the bail, the bail system, the guys that we represent, we do our best work in high-risk cases, right? We're, we're the deciding factor between whether somebody's getting out or not. Jeff, Jeff if I may, uh, we have to... Uh take our first station break. We're approaching that moment. Please hold that thought because it's at the core of what we'll be talking about today. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. We'll be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Special guest today, Mr. Jeff Clayton the executive director of the American Bail Coalition. I appreciate uh, your patience, Jeff, if you would continue and extrapolate a little bit on that thought. Absolutely, Robert. As I was saying, um, you know, the question of nuisance bail and these low bails, you know, the bail industry does their best work in these high-risk cases. And so when I was talking to Mental Health America, they said, you know, what is the situation in mental health and substance use disorders um, that your membership are seeing. I mean, what are they seeing? And I said, well, I don't have any data. So we did a national survey. Uh, and we had, you know, almost 500 agents take the survey. And surprisingly, in this era of divisiveness, 94% of the bail bondsmen who deal um, with the defendants and their families uh, believe that the pretrial system as we know it uh, is inadequate to deal uh, with mental health and substance use disorders. Uh, and so that's that was a startling statistic. And I think that's, you know, even pr- talking to the folks at Mental Health America, I mean, they made the point that, you know, we need to divert these people out. Uh, and that, yeah, while they're uh, committing these crimes, really, they can't form, even though legally they can form the mens rea or the mental, you know, the intent to commit the crime, really they can't in the abstract because of these um, disorders. And the other thing is that using the penal state... Uh, when people uh, have mental health uh, and substance use disorders, they automatically are suspicious and do not uh, want to be under the under the control of the state or being told uh, what to do. And so we're setting ourselves up for failure. And now, now, of course, you know, I'm sounding like an extremist because I'm not coming forward. 
uh, with a solution to that. But, you know, we need to talk about that and figure out how to channel all the wasteful resources we're putting into trying to, um, you know, do criminal justice reform and realize that the front end is a lot uh, earlier than when they commit their first crime. It would seem that the definitions of such issues as mental illness are really a nebulous and abstract. Do you feel there's a definitive solution at the end of the tunnel on something like this? I, I, I do, but I think maybe it's just going to be a shift in resources. Um, you know, you look at all the private foundations that are donating millions and millions and millions of dollars to do criminal justice reform. And, you know, our, our space of pretrial justice and bail is one. And, you know, you look at you know, spending $3 million in St. Louis, for example, Ferguson, to have their um, program not succeed and increase pretrial incarceration by 20%. Well, that's $3 million. Not only did we waste by increasing pretrial incarceration, we didn't put into diversionary programs like mental health, like substance use disorders. And then as we talked about before, the fundamentals of why um, there's over-representation of, of, of um, protected classes in the, ju- in the justice system. So I think we've got to stop thinking that we can use the criminal justice system to fix the ills uh, and focus on the ills more. And, and that's the general shift. And will we ever, you know, reduce incarceration to zero? No, you know. But can we reduce mass incarceration? Absolutely we can. And I think what we found out, at least uh, in an article written by Professor Robert Worth at Rice University, was that by labeling people as risky, which we have been doing as a penal state since 1970, we're continuing to compound the problem. And that is the large reason why we have generational mass incarceration. And to me, it's like, let's reverse that. Uh, and that's the way to do it is, you know, we have to change our philosophy and just realize we can't put everybody on probation forever and we can't fix everybody. And, uh, and that's the way it is. And if we continue to ensnare them in the state, they're just going to get worse over time and we're going to have no choice but to incarcerate them. Perhaps it's time in our discussion that where we could talk about one specific instance of the laws being applied and the bail situation being challenged. Can you, uh, Jeff, give us a precy of the case of Miranda O'Donnell? Who is she? Sure. Um, you know, Miranda O'Donnell was, um, is a, um, a lady who lived in Houston, Texas. Uh, frankly, she had a drug problem, substance use disorder, um, lost her driver's license as a result of possession of controlled substances, continued to drive, uh, and would continue to pick up charges. Uh, she was the named plaintiff in a case uh, that declared Harris County, um, Texas, Houston's bail system uh, unconstitutional, largely because um, there was no right to due process uh, when the bail was set uh, that was adequate under the, under the Constitution. Where Ms. O'Donnell is right now, I don't know. I, I originally... Um, you know, talk to the bail agent that posted that bond, and they they could not find her, uh, and she had disappeared. But it's been six to maybe nine months since I've, you know, reached out to see if they ever found her. Are there plans afoot, uh, and I've heard uh, instances where they've been presented, where the due process situation is being alleviated by a panel or a group deciding what is appropriate shortly after the individual is charged? Yeah, that's been the movement. Obviously, we've advocated for that uh, for years. Um, you know, when we hired uh, former U.S. Solicitor General Paul Clement, the first phone call I had with him, he said, you know, you've got to do these hearings within 48 hours. If you don't, it's potentially unconstitutional. If you do, if it's 48 hours or less, it is constitutional. 
and that should be the message that you that you push throughout the country, which we have done. And you know, the Ohio Supreme Court's considering amending their rule. Uh, in it is a forty-eight hour review process, uh, and that's good. You know, that is that is what we need. You know, there's another case filed down in Galveston, Texas, where they were arguing that you know a defendant couldn't get a hearing uh, in thirty days, and that's wrong. And this is two thousand. 18 and people's patience to just say, oh, well, he's in jail for three days. No, you, that, that's not appropriate uh, or allowable in 2018, but, you know, it shouldn't be, you know, allowable in 1818 either. So, you know, I think the due process issues have been big uh, and important and things that we've been pushing, you know, certainly to say, yeah, you've got to have due process. Could you, for the listening audience, Jeff, follow the legal train of thought uh, from the case of O'Donnell v. Harris County to the decision on the Fifth Circuit Court? Sure. Uh, so the judge um, issued an order basically saying that the bail system was unconstitutional and that folks would have to essentially be immediately released. In other words, you couldn't use a, a bond schedule uh, because if somebody had the money, then they immediately got out, and if somebody didn't, then that was basically instantaneously unconstitutional. Uh, the Fifth Circuit held that, um, you know, that was not unconstitutional, and that as long as there was a process, either uh, you know, on paper or whatever, to file a motion to get in within um, in front of a judge within 48 hours, uh, then you could have a bail schedule. And so the case went back down. We call that O'Donnell one when the Fifth Circuit ruled the first time. Uh, went back down, and the judge changed her order and said, "Well, they've got to do it within 24 hours. Uh, otherwise, it's unconstitutional." And that went up to the Fifth Circuit, who ultimately held, "No, uh, you know, that's an overbroad order, and really." The heart of the matter is you can have a bond schedule, and if somebody asserts um, that you know they're indigent, you have to give them a hearing within 48 hours. And if you don't, that's unconstitutional, and strict scrutiny, you know, will be applied to that, and and the state will never win under, under those circumstances. And so that's kind of how it's turned out. Uh, and like I said, we just got I think we got that order you know less than six weeks ago. You did make a, a very pointed statement that vindication is the best word to describe the outcome of this decision. Do you feel the vindication by the Court of Appeals lends a presumption of finality to all of this? I think it does. And, I, you know, I haven't seen um, whether the um, plaintiffs are going to apply for cert in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. They very well could. I think it was a 90-day clock, so I think they've got to be um, getting close to it. But to have a Court of Appeals finally just get to the point, which was, you know, a point that Eric Holder, I think, made in 2015, which was, look, the big problem in the South on bail was lack of individual consideration for months, for weeks, for too long of a period of time. And obviously the plaintiffs' lawyers in these cases were able to get judges to go a little bit further um, than what the settlement orders were throughout the South on the, you know, Dothan, Moss Point, all the different cases, City of Dodge City, all the 15 cases that settled on the same order. And so I, I do feel vindicated because, you know, we admitted that the previous system was unconstitutional, and that was a big move. That was a, that was not a popular stand for for me to take at the time, but it was the right one, and so and so I feel vindicated by that because you know a lot of the bail industry folks and people outside the bail industry were like, well, why are you even why are you even giving on that point? And you know because it was the right thing to do, and we don't we don't want people sitting in jail without a judge looking at them any more than anybody else does. So there is this overlay of morality that must be painted into every judge's decision. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's a difficult thing to do. You know, um, Professor Daniel Freed noted civil 
libertarian and professor, former Justice Department official under the Kennedy administration, you know, said there's no perfect bail decision. Uh, and that's really hard for judges because, you know, in, in other cases you feel like, okay, if somebody's suing for $100,000 and you hold that, you know, they owed $95,000, you feel like, okay, yeah, that's, that's the perfect decision based on the law, based on the evidence, based on the facts. And in bail, it's just flexible. It's, you know, the evidence sometimes, what is the evidence? Is there any evidence? Uh, a lot of the times it's a judgment call. And so, you know, we've seen arguments that, you know, judges are biased and they, their own inherent biases they bring to the courtroom, and that's that's probably true. But there's no perfect bail decision, and, and I think that, ju- you know, judges obviously do the best they can, and certainly their own morality and their own predispositions and preconceptions, um, you know, lend to that. For the purpose of argument, uh, imagine if I were simply an individual coming in off the street or whatever the circumstance might be, and uh, you've been pro bono assigned by the court to be my attorney. What would be the primary mote of advice you would give me? Well, for me, and that's why I think you know the civil libertarians are going are blowing up their bail reform movement. Is I do not want you talking to anybody from the state that's seeking to prosecute you. I don't want you to be on supervision. I don't want you to be on an ankle monitor. I don't want you to be on any of this because um, the state is going to find a violation. Uh, and even if they find a violation of any kind, um, they'll file additional charges onto you. And so you do not want the state monitoring you while you're under a criminal prosecution. Let's say, for example, too, let's just say you have a substance use disorder, for example. Well, if they monitor that, um, that becomes an additional crime. Uh, the example I used to give people all the time was, let's say you have, um, you, you know, you have a severe alcohol problem. Well, the condition of bail is stop drinking, and most people with a severe alcohol problem can't stop drinking. But if the state's monitoring it you, and you're charged with a felony, you've just committed another felony. So stay away from the state, I think, is number one, to, to the best extent that you can. Uh, and then, of course, you know, just uh, let's evaluate the facts and circumstances of the case and who the DA is and who the judge is and, and try to, you know, make the best decision, the most, uh, you know, personal decision we can uh, for you under the facts and circumstances, you know, of the case. It sounds as if there is a, a rather clouded mirror that's reflecting the ideology of a number of states outside the United States. Uh, I'm thinking of the idea of the procuratorate in China or circumstances like this where it, it's not presumed guilt, but the assumption of guilt. And then one has to play the game to try to segue a way out or to find some flexibility. Do you believe that the current bail situation, Jeff, is so rigid that it's virtually impossible for someone indigent who doesn't have the proper representation to work his way around the details. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think it's without counsel and, you know, without having a competent counsel, it's hard. And I don't think it's just for bail. You know, I think it's for the entire system. And what I have seen in my legal career and have seen over the last couple of years it's just a lack of appreciation for how the American system works. And, you know, the idea that, you know, civil liberties are important and that we need to protect them and that that's a bipartisan issue. And, of course, you know, you see Alan Dershowitz getting raked over the coals for, you know, the things he's doing, but he's a true civil libertarian. He doesn't want the ACLU taking political contributions because he knows we have to focus on core constitutional rights, and that's a, that's a bipartisan issue. Anytime the state is, is trampling somebody's liberties unnecessarily, we have to fight back, and we have to fight back, you know, for the indigent parties who cannot fight 
for themselves. And so I believe in all of that. You know, it, and the current bail, bail system, like I said, I think it is hard, but I think that's just the entire um, you know, criminal justice system uh, that you know, if you're an indigent party, it, it's, it's a lot more difficult to navigate. I would imagine we're playing with the same terminology. Do you feel, as we had said earlier in other programs, that there is a tendency to look for the visceral when basically it's simply the law? John Marshall had said it's just the law, the law, the law. Are we not giving enough credence to just the law as written? I, I absolutely think that's right. Um, and, and, the, and the best example I can give in, on our issue is people say, we don't like the money bail system. Well, that's the constitutional system that we have. Uh, you know, I forget, I think it's 28 state constitutions say all persons shall be bailable by sufficient sureties, which dates to the 1641 uh, Massachusetts Constitution. And obviously prior to bail bondsmen, it was Jeff is putting up the money or promising to pay the money for Robert. And, Jeff, and maybe Jeff isn't enough, and we want another uh, person to vouch uh, for Robert. But that's the system that we had, uh, that we have always had. And, you know, you can disagree whether the, it, you know, somebody should make a profit off, off of it or not. Um, but I think, yeah, we are not giving credence uh, to that idea. And the idea that the reason there is bail is to stop the state uh, from incarcerating people that we believe to be innocent as a society. Without it, um, and the idea of the New Jersey preventative detention system, I mean, there was the uh, a case of a guy accused of possession of marijuana, spent 14 months preventatively detained only to be um, held innocent. And I don't think the community, had they been able to pool their resources, would have allowed that to happen. And so I think it's important to have bail for that reason, largely because detention without bail, you know, in the famous dissent from Thurgood Marshall in the Salerno case was governments around the, around the world labeled their citizens as dangerous, and they lock them up for trials uh, that may very, very well never come because they pronounce them dangerous. And the only way to correct that is to have a right to bail. And so people do not at all give the history of bail or the importance of you know, what the law is, as you say, um, the proper consideration, I wouldn't think. Are there limits, given the ethics or the premise of the American Bail Coalition as to what an individual can claim for surety to post as a, as a bail. Everything is going to be dollars and cents at some point, but uh, at what point do you have a limit on properties, backgrounds, intellectual information, anything of the sort? Well, I think, you know, there probably, you know, there probably isn't any real limit, I suppose. I mean, it's it's flexible in each case. You know, people argued that, you know, should Paul Manafort have to post 10 million? Should, um, you know, a person accused of murder who was a Vietnamese citizen in California have to post um, 35 million? But the reality is, you know, a lot of people get out on their own uh, recognizance, even in felony cases. I mean, I think only, you know, a third to 40 percent are released on some sort of a, of a financial condition. And so, you know, and we've got to rely on judges to decide, you know, um, what conditions are adequate. You know, of course, in the case of Bernie Madoff, you know, we're going to make him deposit all his assets because he's got a lot of people to pay back uh, that'll never get paid back. And to let him, you know, simply go without uh, without doing that was something that, that people didn't want to do. We're approaching our second station break. Uh, Jeff, this has gone by rather quickly. Uh, our discussions always do. It's usually the sign of a good program and a good conversation. I wonder when we come back if we could talk about the details for SB10 and why the controversy. Uh, it seems a dance with different tunes, people changing their minds. 
if we could talk about where it's gone, uh, where it's been, and what the original idea of the bill was, and why there is such a negative reaction to its passage. We'll be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. We're into the last segment of what uh, always proves to be an interesting discussion. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. Our guest is Jeff Clayton, the executive director of the American Bail Coalition. Now, Jeff, it had been coming to my attention and presented to me that you could not, as you wanted to, appear in studio because of your activities out in Sacramento. Can you give us a little bit of background of uh, SB 10, what it's all about, and why it's still being discussed and in flux now? Absolutely. So, you know, as we've talked about uh, on previous shows, and I'll just remind the listeners that, you know, prior to the mid-80s in this country, nobody really believed that the government could label a criminal defendant as dangerous and deny him a right to bail unless it was a capital case. In other words, unless it was first-degree murder, everybody was getting bail. Uh, and when the federal government implemented the Bail Reform Act of 1984, they implemented a system of preventative detention. And what that would mean is the government, the prosecutor would have to prove somebody dangerous, and those people could be detained. The original version of Senate Bill 10 never embraced preventative detention. And I spoke with the sponsors of the legislation even before there was a Senate Bill 10 and said, if you open the door to preventative detention, one, you're going to have to change the California Constitution, and two, it's a can of worms. You'll have groups on all kind, all sides fighting for what they believe to be preventative detention offenses and not, and that you will be you know, causing a major um, issue were you to go to preventative detention. Certainly we saw that in Colorado when it was proposed that most of the groups on the left did not support it. Uh, did not support the move to preventative detention. And so the original version of Senate Bill 10 essentially was we're going to use a risk assessment and try to identify people who are not risky, identify people who are going to show up and try to release them either on their own recognizance or uh, under supervision by the state, uh, by pretrial programs at the local level, basically, that would be funded by the state. And so the idea was to try to create some alternatives to get some of these folks out of jail, most of which... Uh, you know, was supported by various groups. Of course, you know, completely um, putting bail at the end of the menu was something we were opposing because we felt that, you know, for those that can post bail right now, they should still allow, be allowed to do that. Uh, last week, uh, the legislation was getting down to the wire. The session ends uh, August 31st. Uh, an amendment was circulated and adopted this Monday uh, that would create a system of preventative detention based on risk assessments meaning that the state, uh, through prosecutors, uh, under the auspices of judges, uh, could detain this entire group, uh, this category of folks that we were going to determine to be high risk. And frankly, the list of who was high risk was so expansive, it was mind-boggling. For example, let's say I was on probation uh, and within the last, or I was on bail, I'm sorry, within the last five years, I violated any condition of my release. For example, I, let's say I failed to go to my drug test. Um, that would be basis for preventative detention under this system. And so it was so sweeping uh, in terms of who, not only who would get temporarily detained and not be able to post bail, there would be no bail, and all of these people would have to uh, see a judge. And so that is what ticked off the ACLU and all the, these groups to say, no, that's not what we wanted to do. We did not want to expand the state's power to incarcerate because they believe, like I believe, 
um, you know, the safest method for the state is to incarcerate and to not have a counter incentive to stop this, you know, the state's thirst for incarceration like bail uh, would be fatal and increase mass incarceration. And that was their message, uh, that it will increase mass incarceration. And certainly, I think it probably will. Do you have a sense of where the law is going? Because it is uh, basically unconstitutional. I, I am very surprised when I researched it myself, Jeff, that there wasn't an awareness of the constitutionality of it. It almost is as if there was a presupposition that we would concentrate on local authority and local law at the expense of the Constitution, given the fact that perhaps many people wouldn't have even checked. Yeah, yeah, no, that that, that, is, that has been a major problem is that people just don't don't think about this and you know it's uh, it, it really under the case of senate bill 10 boggles the mind to say that the state of new jersey had to change their constitution the state of new mexico had to change their constitution to implement what was called the washington dc system and yet we're the senate and the assembly of california and potentially the governor is going to sign legislation that we know is so clearly unconstitutional that you know, it just won't stand. And that, and that's really the biggest tragedy of all of this is, you know, we should take a step back on this and not waste so much time and resources because we're going to have to have the entire debate again. It would seem that recurrence is the original sin of this issue. Do you see, do you see any finality? We're talking about this constantly, but we seem to be running in place to find a point in time that is behind us. I think that's exactly right, and you put that so well, and I, I've been spending so much time reading the historical record of why we did the Bail Reform Act of 1984, and as I mentioned, the, you know, Daniel Freed, civil libertarian, and talking about, you know, the original meaning of bail and what it was supposed to do and what it wasn't supposed to do, you know, I guess we do need to go back to the future, and I think the solution probably is in the past, uh, and, you know, it, we have to sort of peel the layers of the onions that we put on this system which is all of the stuff, the risk-responsivity principle, the risk assessments, how we're going to respond, correctional technologies. We're going to pile all this stuff on, and do we really need it? Did we really even need it in the first place? Uh, because bail is so temporary uh, in most cases, right? It's not like probation or parole that goes on for years. That Do we need to have agencies supervising people for 30 days on misdemeanor cases? No, we don't. And I think that I think you're exactly right, and you, you hit the nail on the head on that. I'm actually going to use that. <laughs> the, the solution to this issue is in the past. <laughs> for the moment, then, if we could click our heels, take a wish, and become Aquinas for a moment, how would you presuppose a rational criteria for misdemeanor bail reform? Well, I think we need to, one, focus uh, almost exclusively on violent offenses, uh, or offenses where there's a victim. You know, nuisance crimes and crimes against the public for which there's no victim, I think, are probably things, uh, are the fertile ground, I guess I would say, to move away from the need um, for bail. And then I think the secondary thing is protecting the integrity of the court process uh, at a certain point. You know, when somebody has had 15 charges this year and they have not showed up to any of them, and it gets to be a problem, I mean, there has to be some um, response to that so that the, so that the process... Um, can play its way out. So I, that's what I would focus on. And, and the nonviolent misdemeanors and the nuisance crimes and all that, um, those are grounds to say not only should maybe there not be bail, but can they be civil matters um, rather than criminal matters? 
Uh, you know, we've seen that over the years on many issues like marijuana legalization, you know. Went to a traffic ticket in Denver, you know, 100 bucks, And then now, as we know, you know, it's completely legal. So, you know, those are, I think there's a lot of areas there where we can find, you know, some common ground. But those are community-by-community decisions. But, you know, I think that's where the, where, where the real uh, fertile ground is. Do you feel that the effort to legalize marijuana, for instance, uh, is a forecast of a wave of change in regard to drug laws? Um, you know, I, I don't think so. I just think marijuana and, and the idea that it's been around for so long and, you know, just the lack of, um, you know, evidence that it's, it's harmful to society is some of the other things that we have, like the opioid crisis going. I mean, obviously in Denver there's a move to um, now legalize mushrooms, uh, psychedelic mushrooms, which, I, you know, I'm not sure I could support that, but, you know, maybe I will. I don't know. But, um, but I don't think going much further than we've gone um, we're going to see. But what we need to, um, like I said, focus on is, is drug treatment. I mean, we've created this opioid epidemic, and we don't have an answer to it. And it's still rampant. I mean, I was walking around a Capitol Square on my way to get a cup of coffee in Sacramento the other day and was offered, you know, one. Uh, and, you know, I was like, wow, you know, I'm overlooking the Capitol building and here we are. And, um, and this line of people here are, are all addicts and, you know, they're homeless and we don't have a plan for that. And, and you know, we've got to do something about that. I do remember introducing my wife to be to a really elite university and its system and being approached by a gentleman who offered to sell to both of us and my wife asking me what he was selling, and I trying to both say no to him and explain to her what was going on. If we deal with this entire issue, Jeff, release and recognizance and definition are nebulous constructs. What is your own definition as to when a person who is not a habitual user but simply part and parcel of the culture has fallen victim what does one propose to do with that individual? Well, I think we need inpatient drug treatment facilities, frankly. I mean, I think we've seen that in, a, in the one county in Colorado that has one. That, yeah, these people are probably victims in the sense that they're, da- they're, da- they're a danger to themselves. Uh, and the other problem is when they go in jail um, and they can't get out for a couple of days and they go back on the streets, they overdose because they haven't co- they've um, they've detoxified themselves, and they can't take the same doses um, that they had, and so they kill themselves. And so I think the only real solution is to find some other custodial mechanism to help these people that's non-criminal. And that's really all I can come up with. And I think the mental health people in this country tell me that is the one area that's completely, you know, inadequate. And there's one facility here that's... Um, you know, if the bail bondsmen have a difficult case, they call and the mental health facility posts the bond under the assumption that they're going to take them. They're going to detoxify them, and they're going to give them, you know, another chance to see if they can get them off of the drugs uh, or whatever problems they have. So I, that's really the only solution I think I can come up with. Do you feel there needs to be an acceptance of the permanence of the addiction, of the affliction? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, you know, people are going to relapse. And, um, you know, I realize there's a human victim. And that's, you know, where the rubber meets the road for most people, that if there's a human victim, they have no sympathy for uh, the person committing the crime. And and that's wrong as well. I mean, I think, you know, 
I, I wouldn't want to wish a, a life of crime and drug use and substance abuse on anybody. And I do feel sorry for people that get ensnared and didn't have the opportunities I had and, and all that sort of thing to to have a productive and, frankly, a, an enjoyable life so far. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And I think we do need to have sympathy for folks. Obviously, you know, the concepts of restorative justice need to be more incorporated into the system that, you know, when you've compensated a victim, when you've paid your debt to that victim, that's a moment. That's a moment of recovery. That's a moment of closing the door on something. Um, but, you know, some people just have, they're just so far gone with these issues that we're never going to actually get to that point. But with some people, I think that we can. Is it politically feasible, given the contemporary climate, to even consider restorative justice? I am considering the atmosphere around the Rockefeller laws in New York, punishment, punishment, and then again punishment. It's probably not really politically realistic right now, um, because you sort of have the, you know, people running the Willie Horton-style campaigns to say that, you know, if you weaken criminal accountability, it's going to run rampant, and then, you know, I think you have people maybe believing in it a little bit too much on the other side that we can that we can fix everybody. But yeah, it's probably not a politically feasible stance right now, but I guess maybe that's why I'm gonna embrace it and say, you know, again, it's not it's not who's in it's not who is president of the United States um, that matters. It's what we do. And and, you know, it's it's largely irrelevant in the larger world of of policy and moving things forward. And so I guess we just have to put the noise uh, you know, to the extent we can, behind us, uh, shut off Twitter and maybe you know turn off you know CNN or Fox News for a few mm. hours a day and, and and try to focus on trying to do something right. Unfortunately, we're within four and a half minutes of the end of this rather interesting program. We must do it again. It's becoming a, a repetitive kind of construct here, Jeff. But it's thoroughly enjoyed by the audience. If we were to uh, deal with education as a solution. Is there an effort being considered by the Bail Coalition to create curriculum explaining the basic premises of law, of what is happening, and what needs to be recognized and alluded to before a reasonable decision can be made? That's certainly one of our priorities for next year, is just sort of giving people an idea of how the system works. And as I, as I mentioned, when I went to Mental Health America and presented to, you know, 200 mental health professionals from around the country, they were surprised. And the thing they were surprised at was we're, we are the only player in the criminal justice system, um, you know, that has access to the support network of a person. And that's the key moment when something could be done and something isn't done. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, that's an important thing uh, to think about for sure. Would that extending it a step further be something that should be on the agenda of virtually every school board in the United States? I think so. I, you know, what really is disheartening for me is just the lack of understanding of, uh, of, of civics in this country and how the, how the country works. I mean, I think everybody's solution is just to protest and say ban everything. Uh, and that's just not how it works. Um, you know, America is all about uh, compromise and respecting other people's opinions and their right to have um, those opinions. So that's what's really disheartening. And as you know, I mean, every American thinks they're a political expert, uh, but few really are. Uh, and that's the situation we have ourselves in. And of course, everybody gets on Twitter and tweets away, and then, you know, you look and they have, you know, 42 followers. So what are we, what are we really doing here? Are we really talking to each other? Or are we really just talking at each other? And I think right now we're talking at each other. This seems to be the case. It seems as if we live in an age when two and two are five. 
What are the precise focal points of the coalition's efforts now? And we're within 220 of the end of this program. What are some issues that are right around the corner, some efforts being made that the audience should pay attention to? Well, I think people are going to look to us as this movement fractures, the third generation of bail reform fractures, which it has. It's permanently fractured. And I think what people are going to look for is what is the next generation of bail reform. And that's what we're working on right now. And it's some of the things I've talked about, but also recognizing that this is 2018. You can, you know, you can purchase your casket for your funeral on an app on your phone, but you can't bail your friend out of jail. Um, you know, things like that, things like people just sitting, not being able to get a hearing. We need more instantaneous justice. And so that's what we're going to bring. Uh, we're going to try to move uh, the system forward and um, not worry about what happened in the past. And maybe, as you said, we'll find a solution in the past and to sort of get rid of a lot of the unnecessary and wasteful practices that are proving just to ensnare people in the system. And that's not what the bail system is all about. And let's go back to, you know, the way it was. Uh, and I think in, in so doing, free up resources, do other things, uh, and just make the system better. Uh, and say, admit that it is going to be the bail system, uh, and do everything we can to make it function better. Jeff, uh, an absurd type of question, but can you in 30 seconds give the listening audience a way to attach themselves to your organization and contact you and deal with you? Absolutely. Social media is probably the best place to go. Uh, AM Bail Coalition on Twitter. Uh, we're also on Facebook. And then, of course, our In the News section uh, of the American Bail Coalition uh, .org website. Um, you can follow pretty much all the activities, uh, see all the things that we're up to. This is really proof of the fact that law, as it was meant to be, is a living thing. I'm sure that the listening audience has thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. I know I certainly have myself. I'm hoping that it was positive on your end as well. Hopefully we can do this again at a later date when different things are happening, and hopefully they're optimistic and positive. Must say goodbye at the moment. This is Robert. My program is Seldom Said. Our guest today has been Mr. Jeff Clayton.